Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thank you, Amy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the great God. You are our king. You are our savior. And we ask now, Father, as we come to you to worship you in spirit and in truth, to delve into the truths of this uh, wonderful psalm, where you reveal what you will do through your son when he comes 1,000 years before it happens. We're just amazed at your power and your wisdom. We thank you for the privilege of coming to you in prayer, calling you our God, calling you our Father. We thank you most of all for Jesus, our Savior, and we pray that the words we say today will bring great glory to him. For it's in his name we pray, amen. You may be seated. It's good to see everyone. My name is Stephen Carlson. I'm one of the elders here, and I'm pinch hitting for Jamie today. Uh, if you've been here fairly recently, you may be thinking this is the fourth different dude they've had in the pulpit, uh, four straight weeks here. But uh, we've this is our missions month, and um, I kind of feel like the last man standing because pastoral staff's out of town, and half the elders are out of town. Um, a few years ago, back, I think it was the first year we started, Jamie called me and asked me to preach for him because he was sick, and I don't know if he wanted me to preach specifically or if I was the only one that he knew would still be awake at 1.30 a.m., <laughs> but uh, both then and now, I'm kind of the last man standing, and we'll see what the Lord does. I'm kind of uh, wanting to accomplish two things today. Uh, we are finishing out our uh, missions emphasis in the month of May, and we're also starting a series in Psalms. Uh, this is something that we have done three or four times in the past. We're returning to, to that. We decided it would be better to do it that way than preach straight through 150 Psalms. And so during the next 10 Sundays, starting today, that is through June and July, we're going to be looking at select Psalms, and we're starting this morning with Psalm 2. And the reason I believe this is such a good transition is because not only is it uh, one of the Psalms, it's a messianic Psalm, and embedded in here clearly is the gospel. So we have a Psalm closing out our missions emphasis that declares the gospel 1,000 years before Jesus came. And so I'd like to uh, 
consider some pre preliminary things before we actually get into the text. Uh, the book of Psalms is basically a hymn book. Now, I don't know if any of you remember this, but I grew up in Southern Baptist churches, and we had the Baptist hymnal. And it was in front of us on the pew, and we, every song we sang came out of the Baptist hymnal. Okay, now, it's really not too far-fetched to think of the book of Psalms as the Hebrew hymnal, because that's precisely what it was. This was their songbook. These 150 songs were put to music. In fact, the word mizmor in Hebrew and psalm, which is a Greek word, both of those words mean lyrics put to music, having musical accompaniment, like we were doing a moment ago. They were intended to be sung with musical accompaniment, and they have specific purposes in being written and sung. Every psalm is a celebration of the greatness of God, the greatness of Yahweh as king. And some of those are specifically also celebrations of the coming messianic king. And that's what Psalm 2 is. It's the first of numerous messianic psalms in the book of Psalms. And so in looking at the psalms, this is a book of poetry. This is Hebrew poetry, Semitic poetry, very different from ours. Um, rhyming sounds uh, are not the concern of Hebrew poetry. The concept here is a parallelism of ideas. In other words, one line will say something, and the next line will either develop it or say it in a different way or provide something to contrast. In fact, you can see that in the very first two sentences. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot? The nations and the people, what are they doing? They're raging and they're plotting in vain. Those two concepts are describing the same thing, but in a different way. And this carries on all the way through Hebrew poetry. About 40% of the Old Testament is poetry. You're talking about the entire book of Psalms, the entire book of Proverbs, most of Ecclesiastes, all of the Song of Solomon, large portions of the prophets, and most of the book of Job. And so this is where we're going to be. We're going to be looking at a psalm that the people of Israel began to sing at the time of David when he wrote this. They would sing this when they came together. They would sing this in their homes. And in retrospect, after the Christ event, we can understand it much better than they did. But David here, speaking and writing and singing through the inspiration of the Spirit, gave us a remarkable anticipation, prediction of what Jesus would do when he came. And we have to remember that in looking at this type of psalm, Psalm 2, another one would be Psalm 16, another was Psalm 110, all of these need to be understood on two levels. There's a historical context that applies directly to Israel at the time, and then there is one that applies to the greater son of David, Jesus Christ. And we're going to try to develop both of those as we go through it today. And this particular psalm divides nicely into four stanzas of three verses. And so that's the way I'm going to break down this psalm. You might notice as you look at the psalms, and I'm, I'm sure you've noticed this before, that some of them have a superscription or a title right before verse 1. 
Uh, this psalm does not. But uh, look, say, in uh, Psalm 4, right there it says, to the choir master. So, Dan, this was written for you, wherever you are. He left. Um, <laughs> and uh, sometimes there's a specific occasion associated with the psalm. Look at Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. This was toward the end of David's reign where his son Absalom rebelled against him and tried to take over his kingdom. David wrote this psalm about that. And there are 116 of these psalms that have these superscriptions or titles. And in the Hebrew text, they're actually verse 1. And I think it's, it's safe to uh, consider them accurate and helpful in understanding uh, what the writer wanted us to know about this context of the psalm. Psalm 2 was probably written toward the end of David's reign. As you look through the life of David in First and Second Samuel, it's a remarkable story of how God used this shepherd boy to become not only the king of Israel for 40 years, but to conquer most of the Mediterranean world. We think of the great empires of the past, like the Greeks and the Romans, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians. For one brief shining moment during the reigns of David and Solomon, that's 80 years, 40 years each, Israel was the dominant nation of the Mediterranean world. David never lost a battle to a foreign empire. But he knows what these people are thinking when he conquers them because he is telling them there's only one God. And he's the God of Israel. His name is Yahweh. And that's who you should be worshiping. And they don't want to do it. And that's where David starts this psalm. So we're going to break this down into four uh, sections of three. So the first point here is Yahweh's enemies, verses 1 to 3. And in each of these, there's a different speaker, as we'll see. So in verses 1 to 3, the speaker are God's enemies. This is what they're doing, and this is what they say. Look at verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against Yahweh and his anointed, his Mashiach, Messiah. That's the Hebrew word there, Messiah. Who is the anointed one here? David. In the original context here, David is the anointed king. Kings and priests, not just in Israel, but throughout the Mediterranean world at the time, were anointed. God anointed David to be the king. He is God's Messiah at that time. And he promised all of the line of David that they too would be his anointed king. The nations of the Mediterranean world are rebelling against this man who has conquered them and telling them to worship the one true God. They don't want to hear it. In fact, this is what they decide to do. Look at verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We are going to break away from David the king, and we're going to be independent again, and eventually we're going to conquer him. This was their plan. This is rebellion and unbelief against the one true God. See, in the culture of that day, 
Israel was the only nation that believed in only one God. All the others were steeped in polytheism, gods and goddesses. And they believed that when one nation conquered another, that just proved that this nation's gods were more powerful than this one. And they hated the thought of these monotheistic Hebrews conquering them and claiming there was only one God. We are going to bring an end to this. For 80 years, the nations of the Mediterranean world bowed to David and Solomon, and they hated every minute of it. But what is God's response? We live in a world of unbelief. And there's a sense in which what we read here in verses 1 to 3 is exactly what's going on in the hearts of people who live in unbelief. They refuse to believe in the God of scriptures. They refuse to believe that he is Trinity, that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, God the Son, to be king and ruler of all, and most important, that he sent him to die for us, that we might live forever. They don't want anything to do with a God like that, because that means I have to admit that I'm a sinner and I've done something wrong. We can't have that. Not in the world today. In fact, what's interesting is verses 1 and 2 are quoted in the book of Acts. Acts um, 4, 25 and 26. Early in the, in, the, in the early church, very early in the, as the church began, they were persecuted. And the apostles quoted these two verses and said, what happened to King David, the rebellion of the nations against him, is happening again today against David's son, the true Messiah. And they specifically mentioned Pontius Pilate and King Herod. And they foolishly thought they, had been, they were done with Jesus. But all they really did was help accomplish God's plan of redemption because God raised Jesus from the dead. What is God's response at the time of David? Well, look at verses 4 through 6. This is Roman numeral, this is point 2. Yahweh's laughter. You don't see that very often. And here, Yahweh himself is the speaker. Only two other times, and both of them are in the book of Psalms, does it say that God laughs. He who sits in the heavens laughs. And all three times, he's laughing at the folly of those who rebel against him. It's a horrible, horrible thing here. It's mind-bogglingly stupid to rebel against someone who is omnipotent. Do you really think you're going to win? That's why God laughs. Who do you think you are? Look, look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. 
Yahweh holds them in derision. They're deluded. God is going to accomplish his purpose. And specifically in this context, what is he doing? What is his plan? Look in verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Notice the parallel again, speaking in his wrath, terrifying them in his fury. What has he done? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It was, I didn't realize this was going to happen. We, uh, it was providential. We had two songs talking about God is king. Jesus is king. And one mentioned the city Zion. Zion is the kingdom name of the city of Jerusalem. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, that's the name where Jerusalem lives up to its actual name. It's the kingdom name, the name where Jerusalem will actually be the city of peace, which is what that word means. Jerusalem means city of peace. So far, it's been full of irony. Jerusalem has been anything but a city of peace, but when it becomes Zion, it will accomplish the purpose that God has restored for it. Already he calls it Zion here. I have set my king, David, and his descendants, and his descendants over and over, that entire dynasty, starting with David, all the way to the end of the monarchy. And the Babylonians took them into captivity. I have set my king on Zion. This is a Zion. Mount Zion is a mountain range there in Jerusalem. And legend has it that King David is actually buried there. God has done this. And yet we know from the Old Testament history that what God wanted Israel to do, what God's plan for David and his descendants to do was not accomplished. And that's going to be the next thing we see. Let's look at number three, point number three. Yahweh's promises. This is in verses seven to nine. And now... The speaker here is the anointed king, the son. David is speaking. He's speaking as the king. And he's quoting God. He says, Yahweh, the Lord, said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, the language here can be a little confusing because the word son is a very flexible term in the Bible. Here it's not talking about an actual father-son because we're talking about God and his relationship to human beings. And so what we need to uh, understand is that in that historical context, the son was a title given to the king. In Deuteronomy 1, we're told that God refers to Israel as his son. I have been like a father treating his son. And as a thousand years later, Hosea 11, out of Egypt I have called my son, God says, speaking of the Exodus when the nation of Israel 
came out of Egypt. And so since Israel as a nation was considered God's son, so was the king, the leader of the nation. And this is what God is saying here. There's no sense in which the David was actually the son in the sense that Jesus is. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But here, and this was another common expression throughout the Mediterranean world, that the king on the throne was considered a son of the gods. He had special relationship to the gods. Here, the term is used the same way, only it's Yahweh who has established his son on his throne, and he chose him, and he anointed him. Notice it's a specific event. This is the day of coronation for the king. Today, I have begotten you. Today, I have set you on your throne. You are my son. Today, I have begotten you. This is a specific event. This is the day God chose David to be king. And notice the promises. This is Yahweh's promises, verses 7 to 9. This is what David says God promised him. Verse, there's two of them in verses 8 and 9. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, we've already talked about how once Israel was in the land of promise, they began to expand during the monarchy and began to conquer the nations around them as God had told them to do and to spread the worship of Yahweh despite the fact that the nations didn't want it. They still needed to know who the one true God was. And in the Abrahamic covenant in chapter 15, right at the end of that chapter, God gives Abraham the boundaries of what the promised land would be. It goes all the way up to Assyria. It goes all the way east to Babylon. It goes all the way south to the Nile in Egypt. That's a huge chunk of territory. And at no time in Israel's history did they ever reach those boundaries. And yet here, God extends it even beyond that. I will give you everything, the ends of the earth. All the nations will be yours. This was to be an act of faith on the part of Israel's kings that God would do this for them. Trust in God. Keep his covenant. And it won't just be the holy land, the promised land that God gives you. He will give it all to you. But that didn't happen, did it? Both at the time of David and Solomon, there were terrible failures. David sinned with Bathsheba, caused the civil war. Solomon, in his latter days, lapsed into idolatry under the influence of his foreign wives, and God judged him for it. The breaking asunder of his kingdom at the time of his son's reign, Rehoboam. And eventually, because of the king's wickedness, moving further and further away from God, instead of believing in God and expanding God's kingdom throughout the Mediterranean world, they began to be conquered by foreign empires, and eventually both were taken into captivity. So, 
When is God going to do this? How is this going to be accomplished? Well, you probably noticed there in verse 7 that this is quoted in the New Testament. Also, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The Apostle Paul quotes this passage in um, his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13. And he connects it to Jesus' resurrection. He says, this is the day when God declared him to be his son. He's always been the eternal son. That's not the sense in which he means it. This is when he declared him to be king in his resurrection. And Paul makes that same connection in Romans 1. This is the way Paul begins the epistle of Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Here's the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice how Paul pulls all those threads together. Jesus descended and royal son of David and son of God, declared to be so in his resurrection. It was there that the coronation of Jesus as king was established. This proved, his resurrection proved his right to rule as king. But Jesus isn't yet on the throne of David. He isn't yet on the throne to rule over all the nations of the earth. That's awaiting the future. And by the way, the book of Hebrews also quotes this verse. You are my son, today I have begotten you. To show the superiority of Jesus over the angels in Hebrews 1.5. And then he repeats it again in chapter 5, verse 5. All the nations are going to be his. Um, take a look at um, Revelation Chapter 21. You know, once a king dies, a new king has to take his place. And that new king is the anointed king, is the Messiah. In the, in the context of David in the Old Testament. He's also the Son. And then as we've seen, though, this history that we look at in the Old Testament was a dismal failure. Was God, were God's purposes thwarted? Of course not. Here's how he's going to do this. Notice Revelation 21, beginning in verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Did, did you ever think about that? We're talking about the eternal state here. We're talking about the new heavens and new earth. We're talking about where God is going to bring all the redeemed 
And yet there's a sense in which we're going to retain our national identity. The nations will bring its glory into the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. Revelation 9 has already told us that God has a people, excuse me, chapter 7, tells us that God has a people from every tribe and people and nation and tongue that will be redeemed, that belong to him. This is one of the expressions of the power of the gospel to bring people of such diversity into one family, to live together forever. And then he says, chapter 22 in Revelation, verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Notice the throne there. Where is it? In Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem. Who's on the throne? God and the Lamb. Father and Son. The eternal Son as the King's Son sitting on His throne. Through the middle of the street of the city and also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. This is what we're going to do for all eternity. We're going to worship the one on the throne and His Son. Because his son is worthy of worship because of who he is. Not just the eternal son, Yahweh himself, the true king, the true son of David, who accomplished all that David and his descendants failed to do. And there's a, another passage in uh, John chapter 1 that ties into this. The first time Nathaniel sees Jesus, Jesus tells him something about himself. And how, do you, how in the world can you know that? And Nathaniel says, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Those are parallel terms in his mind based on Old Testament, particularly Psalm 2. You are my son. You are the one that I have declared to be king and despite the failure of David and his dynasty, the true son of David is going to accomplish all of this. And he does it through death and resurrection. And we live in the era between his coronation as king and his ascending the throne as king. That is still to come in the future when he returns. And then finally, in the last stanza, Yahweh's commands, verses 10 through 12. And now the speaker is David the psalmist. Here's his advice to the high and the mighty throughout the world. <laughs> now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Here's what you need to do. Serve the Lord. Serve Yahweh, the one true God, with fear and rejoice with trembling. How do you do this? Notice the parallel here of these two commands. Serve Yahweh, kiss the Son. 
show allegiance to the Son. Show, I think some of the translations uh, put something like do homage. I think that misses the imagery here, though. The idea is right, but the imagery is lost. How do you serve Yahweh? You kiss the Son. And what does he mean by that? And this is not the kiss of friendship or the kiss of a relative, the kiss on the cheek. This is not what's going on here. I recently saw a, an episode of The Crown. I think it was like the second episode of the series where Elizabeth and her husband, Philip, were touring the dominions, the nations who are under the uh, authority of the crown of the United Kingdom. And she was in Kenya. And her father died, the king, which automatically made her the queen. And when word finally spread, they contacted her and those there in Kenya that their king had died. One of the leaders of the tribes there where Elizabeth was, walked over to Queen Elizabeth, got down on his hands and knees and kissed her feet. That's what David is telling us. This is the kiss of subservience, bowing to the authority and power of, the, of this king, this son, this Messiah. I'm reminded of the New Testament where Jesus is visiting Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And Mary comes and anoints his feet and kisses his feet in utter devotion and love. And after the resurrection, Mary Magdalene and another woman see Jesus resurrected and they grab him by the feet. They're overjoyed to see him. This is what David is calling on us to do. Show subservience to the son, the king. Now, we can't literally bow to the king now. So what does it mean? Well, notice what the rest of it says. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. We need to remember something that Jesus said. In uh, John 5, I'd like to read that. This is John 5, 21 to 24. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Did you notice what Jesus said here? You cannot worship God unless you worship him first. It's not possible to know God. It is not possible to serve God. It is not possible to love God. It is not possible to worship God unless you worship Jesus first. You can't honor the Father without honoring the Son. This was 
God's way of redemption. How do we then, what happens to those who refuse to do this? The son's going to be angry. Jesus just said, the father has given all judgment into my hands. He's going to be the one who judges. He's going to be the one to determine eternal destiny. You are mine. Enter my kingdom. You are not mine. Depart from me. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is what we need to do to take refuge in him. This, this word, take refuge in Hebrew, this is the same word used over in Ruth 2 when she first comes to present herself to Boaz. And he says, you have come to me because the Lord has taken you under his wing to provide you refuge. The idea is protection. We come to him for protection, for safety. Because in Jesus and Jesus alone do we find it. We come to him in faith. This is how we kiss the son. We come to him in faith. We say, you and you alone can save me from my sins. This is how we honor God by believing his son. Jesus said, this is the will of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And the apostles said in Acts, God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. Those who know Jesus have already repented. They've already come to faith in him. They have already bowed to him in faith, believing that he and he alone can save them. And that's God's command to all those who still don't know him. This is why I said the gospel is in Psalm 2. Who is this Jesus? He's the one who is going to rule over all forever, just as the song said. He's the king. He's the one who is going to rule over the nations with a rod of iron, like there in verse 9. That's also referred to in Revelation at the true triumphant entry. Revelation 19, coming down on a white horse in conquest. My question for you, and you know, in a, in a congregation this big, I assume that there are people here who do not know Jesus. And I hope that the day can be the day of salvation for you. If you have questions about this, I would be glad to talk to you afterward. Jackie will, any of our other members. Don't walk away from here wondering. There's too much at stake. Jesus is inviting you to come to him by faith. And I hope today can be the day of salvation if that's not already true for you.